Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Passionate, patriotic, a little bit pugilistic, and always professional. Hear what Roy Green has to say on the Chorus Radio Network. It is uh, called the shot that was heard around the world, and it has been heard around the world. And it's been talked about globally as a Joint Task Force 2 sniper, Canadian counterterrorism um, unit, military unit, special forces unit, took a 3,540-meter 3, shot, 3,540 meters, 2.1 miles, and uh, killed an ISIS terrorist. And it's just such a remarkable, remarkable achievement, more than a, about a thousand meters further than the previous world record for a sniper. And we've heard about the fact that they had to calculate the curvature of the world or the earth in order to take this shot. Who are the JTF2 snipers? Who are, who's in JTF2? How do you become a, a member of JTF2? What do you have to be able to do? Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, retired former commanding officer of Canada's National Counterterrorism Military Unit, uh, joins us now. He's the founder and president of the premium security solutions provider firm Reticle, and that's reticle.com. Colonel Day, good to talk to you. Roy, pleasure to be back with you, sir. Uh, reticle.com, not that reticle has anything to do with uh, with, with citing a, a shot. It's a joke. Yeah. I, <laughs> Yes, no, but it's funny you mention that because obviously looking through that scope, the pattern that you see through a sniper scope or a camera lens is called a reticle pattern. So share with us, please, what are your thoughts about that shot that was taken? Uh, what's, what's your reaction? And, and who are these snipers? What, what makes somebody a, uh, a sniper? What, what, what qualities do you have to have to be able to do what they do? Well, right, so to start with the qualities to become a sniper, you have to be extremely patient and have a high degree of uh, perseverance built into absorb uh, a bit of punishment of the elements. So it is not uncommon for snipers to get what's called into a sniper hide and be there for multiple hours or days as they get fit or as they get set and watch the environment around them and pass information back to higher levels of command and then other maneuver units that the sniper element may be supporting. So to be a sniper, you really have to have a, a significant degree of patience and then just calmness about your demeanor. And uh, this shot in particular, can you explain to us how it would have been would have been taken? Because there's a, a great deal of drop. That bullet would drop a tremendous amount, would it not? Over 2.1 miles. And what has to be calculated? What goes into taking this shot? Well, absolutely. So... First of all, this shot in particular was shot from a, uh, a higher elevation, so that adds another degree of uh, difficulty 
when you're up in an apartment building or, you know, just off the normal um, lay of the land because there's another degree of precision you need to work through. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, a team, uh, it's a team sport, if you will. You've got your spotter who's out there looking and adjusting and calling for fire if you happen to miss. You clearly have the shooter. And then when you're out 3.5 kilometers, you have another, another number of factors to worry about. Wind, curvature of the earth, as you already talked about. And in the heat of the Middle East, all the mirage that comes off of the ground, you've got to try and adjust for all of that as well. It's, it's a very, very impressive shot that uh, we've just seen executed. And Canadian snipers have a, a history of being very good at this particular skill. Yes, uh, three, three of the five longest recorded shots currently are held by Canadians. There's so much uh, urban legend, uh, Colonel Day, about special forces. Um, what are the what are the basic character traits that an individual has to have in order to become a member of Joint Task Force Two? Let's say you've joined the military, you've done the prerequisites, you've you're now applied to become a member of JTF Two. We've all seen the the movies and the TV series about becoming members of special forces units, but in reality, what what's most necessary? What, what's most necessary is having the right balance between maturity, physical fitness, and the ability to be a cognitive warrior, being, 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 being in a situation and making the right decisions under uh, a very stressful environment and not having all the information. So you don't have to be the fittest individual in the Army, for, as an example, but you need to be well above average. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the military, but you have to be well above average. And then lastly, you don't have to be the most driven, but you have to be a well above average. And by those three peri- those three legs of the stool make you a very unique uh, individual. It's like driving a, a Formula One car, for example, or a brain surgeon. There's a number of different attributes, personal attributes, that those people have that allow them to rest at that pinnacle of their profession. We talked a few months ago about how to handle um, terror groups like ISIS. And if I recall correctly... You suggested one of the ways that it could be done would be to allow special forces units or counterterrorism units like Joint Task Force 2 to go out and do what they do best. Let them go out in, in un- small units and essentially let them go and do what they do. Um, is that, am I under, do I remember this correctly? And would this situation in Iraq maybe have been that kind of situation? Yes, absolutely, uh, Roy. When you look at what's going on right now in the battle for Mosul, which has been going on now for months, this is exactly where special operations are optimized. It's what's known as a low-intensity fight. It's not big maneuver elements like armies on armies. It is small, insurgent, cellular organizations that require a cellular approach to be able to get in there and help root them out, get in front of the problem, and then to stand off 3.5 kilometers and, and strike them where they don't even know that it's coming. They don't even know the direction it's coming from or the fact that you've been able to deliver a, a lethal blow at a significant standoff direction. This is exactly where special operations is, op- is optimized in the contemporary, uh, contemporary threat environment. What's the impact on the other side? What's the impact on the terrorists once this shot has been taken, once they realize from where it was taken or how long a shot it's been, what does it do to them? Well, the nice thing is it starts to now shift the momentum, if you will, around they're not sure they want to come outside that building. They may not be sure they want to move from one hiding location to another hide location. So it's, it's very psychologically powerful. When you think you may be hiding somewhere and all of a sudden one of your, your, uh, 
comrades is, is struck from out of the blue. It, it is psychologically very, very difficult on an adversary. Let me ask you uh, about you. What are the challenges, maybe the lifetime benefits, of being the commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2? First of all, it has to be a source of great pride. No, it's a, yeah, it's a, personally a source of tremendous pride to have had the opportunity to lead um, what I often characterize as, as Canada's gold medal Olympic winning Stanley Cup champion a hockey team. It's the, it's the best analogy I can give from a Canadian perspective. Um, and it just goes to show you, irrespective of what field, as I mentioned before, if you arm Canadians with the right knowledge and you equip them and you allow them to train, there's nothing in the world we as Canadians cannot do and be the best in the game at doing. But we've got to be given the opportunity and the resources to do those things. So I am personally extremely proud to have served in uh, the Special Operations Committee for over a decade. And for the men and women that continue to serve today and are walking point for us halfway around the world. How much uh, hands-on would you have had as the commanding officer as far as what these uh, units, the smaller units that are out in the field doing what they do, how much hands-on would you have had? Well, my, myself, you know, once you become the commanding officer, as you move up in, in rank, quite honestly, I, I get paid to assess risk. I get paid to ensure that the men and women have the appropriate training. And I uh, get paid to make the hard decisions when we're trying to resolve a, a certain challenge. But in terms of hands-on day-to-day, as you move up as a senior officer, you have a lot less hands-on. Clearly, you still have a lot of those skills, but I would argue... I would not be as current or as proficient as a lot of my, my brothers there at JTF2 right now. So what are the skills that, uh, that are developed? When, when you, you leave your, the unit that you're in, you've been uh, accepted into Joint Task Force 2, what are the things that you learn? For example, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about uh, you had just completed uh, two days of driving instructions for, uh, I don't know if it was an arm of the government or somebody in the private sector, and, and they had learned how to drive a vehicle under the most extremely stressful situations. What, are the, what's the, what does some of the training involve? Yes, yeah, so um, currently, you know, so I, I spent over a decade in the special operations community, another decade in the wider Canadian Army. And uh, what I like to do and with a number of folks that have now retired as well is we're looking to give back and just support the Canadian forces and other national security actors from a different foxhole, if you will. So when you've got 20 or 30 years of experience, which takes you 20 or 30 years to get, it would be awfully nice to be able to hand off to the next generation some of those hard lessons that we learned through the decade of, dark, decade of darkness in the 90s and then through a number of different things we did in the, in the 2000s in Afghanistan and other places around the world. So it just it takes a long time to get all that experience and, and hopefully wisdom paired up with the experience. And I, I believe that to continue to, to serve this country best, um, I'm, I'm trying to keep together a number of gray beards, as we would call them, the, the older generation who've retired, but still have a lot of knowledge and a lot of uh, ability to pass those, those skills, knowledges, and abilities to the younger generation. And this is what Radical is about. It's one of the things we do within Radical, yes, sir. So, um, what, uh, I, I wanted to ask you this question. I don't know quite how, how to ask it, but let me just use the word that, that I hear uh, time and again when people talk about special forces units. And, of course, there's a great deal of attention paid because every anytime there's a special forces film or something on TV, any man watching becomes the guys on the screen. You know, you, you want to be you want to be there. 
are they Superman? Are these are these are these these soldiers? Are they capable of of um, of of action and completing tasks that the average person just could not do? Well, I would say they're absolutely um, they're trained to do a number of things that the average person is not trained or to do. But I think the number one discriminator, quite honestly, is is that ability to drive on and achieve mission success when you are by yourself and you're not sure what's going on around you. And that is one of the big attributes that we look for. People who have an, an unquenchable desire to succeed with the task they are given at hand and to pursue excellence in everything that they are doing. And that, that is the biggest differentiator. You're given a task and you're expected to execute that task 100% of the time to 100% um, you know, uh, accuracy all by yourself. And that's what we expect of the special operations community. And regardless of the circumstances that surround you. Regardless of the circumstance, if you are the last man standing, you are expected to drive on to, to accomplish that mission. Colonel Day, please hold on. We'll come back and we'll talk some more. Uh, my guest is Colonel Steve Day, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former uh, commanding officer for Joint Task Force 2. We'll uh, talk more about uh, the, the shot. And I'll ask Colonel Day as well about some of the political reaction that has come forward since then, like Mr. Mulcair's response. Don't go away. Taking on the Titans, standing up for the little guy. It's the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I always feel it's a privilege to speak with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's National Counterterrorism Military Unit. He's the founder and president of the premium security solutions provider firm Reticle, and that's reticle.com online. Colonel Day, uh, is it fair to assume that the sniper who took the shot, by the way, will we ever know who it is? Uh, I do not believe we will uh, ever know who that is. Possibly after that, a member retires. But for the most part, um, Joint Task Force 2, their members, and a lot of their operations are, are, are all classified for operational security reasons because the last thing we want to do is put this young man's name out there in the public and his partner so that somebody in 10 or 15 or 20 years may be able to find him on the Internet and find and uh, bring harm to his family. Yeah, I found it unusual that the, uh, the other longest shots, or the other world records for snipers, they named the sniper, they named the country, and the unit that he was with, and I found that very unusual. But um, Well, it's, it's, yeah, sometimes unusual, because those are wider army things. Yeah, ideally, should, should we be talking about it? You know what? We should not. Yeah. We should be finding a way to celebrate this appropriately, but based on the Internet, um, you know, and what we're seeing in a very information-hungry world these days, what we end up creating, unfortunately, is a little bit of a risk profile for that, like I said, that wider family, which is why in JTF2, operation security is paramount. Is it fair to assume that he's made longer shots than that, or shots just as long shooting at, at uh, inanimate targets? Uh, yes. Um, and again, you, you need to understand, like, a 50 caliber TAC McMillan uh, sniper rifle, that round will actually travel almost six kilometers. Wow. So when you, if you were to shoot that 50 caliber round, oh, the danger template on a 50 caliber round is almost six kilometers. So 
you don't normally train out to that that distance quite honestly because after a certain uh, number of meters you you lose the what we would call the stopping power uh the kinetic energy of that round so you know it, it's not unusual to be training in the the two to three kilometer band because you still have a lot of stopping power in that 50 caliber round, as we've seen. Yeah, and the rifle itself, if you were to take that rifle and compare that uh, that particular rifle to a high-powered hunting rifle, what are we talking about? Sedan versus Formula One car? Well, yes, because like, like I said earlier, don't, it's also the spotter, it's the scope, right. there's uh, software that helps you account for wind and, like I said, uh, elevation changes, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's not only all the equipment, what, what gets lost in here, there's a bunch of science to shooting at that distance, but it is still truly an art because if that, if that sniper flinches ever so much on the trigger pull, that round will go tens and tens of meters off target when you're down three kilometers downrange. You know, I was, it I was, is truly an art. I was asking the studio operator whether I should tell you the story that I shared with our beauties. Uh, we do a Beauties and the Beast thing on Saturdays with Linda Leatherdale, Catherine Swift, and Michelle Simpson. I told them when I was in the Naval Reserve in my late teens, we went to Collège Royal Militaire Saint-Jean and went to the range, and we had we got sniper training. I asked them to just put us through a bunch of things. You know, you know how it is better than I do. And, uh, and so I was lying in a prone position. I had a target to shoot at, and I was going to be told when to shoot. I thought I was perfectly still, perfectly calm. I was going to shoot between breaths, you know, get your breath under control, get your heart rate down. I was all set. I was all pumped. I thought I was going to be the next 3,000-meter shooter. And then I felt the steel cap boot in my spine. And I heard, you're dead. You're dead. You're dead. You're moving so damn much. Why don't you just get up and wave to the enemy? <laughs> Absolutely. Like I said, it, there, there is an art that marries up nicely with the science that turns right. what is truly mastercraft. Yeah, that we're so proud of, uh, of our military. We're so proud of the men and the women in the military who volunteer and who will put their lives on the line and do put their lives on the line every day for the rest of us. And I was going to ask you about the political responses, but we'll leave that out. Colonel Day, it's, uh, it's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you for your service to this country. And we're coming up to our 150th birthday, and you've made it a much more secure nation for, for all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roy. And uh, on that note, all the best to your listeners there as we approach the 150th uh, anniversary celebrations of a truly outstanding nation. So uh, all the best. We will talk again, I'm sure. I look forward to it. Thank you, Colonel Day. All the best. Bye-bye. Colonel Steve Day, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the retired commanding officer of Canada's National Counterterrorism Military Unit, and his company now is Reticle.com. And that chief petty officer, O'Sullivan, I will never forget that dude. He never spoke. He almost yelled. But we're so proud of, of our military. They are literally protecting us and saving our lives. We'll come right back.